0: So let's just pray. Father, tonight in the name of Jesus, we welcome you in this place. We exalt you, mighty God, Prince of Peace, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, that hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Father, we pray over every family, every person here today. God, over our marriages, over their finances, over the health in their bodies, over their jobs. We lift up those that are. At a loss of their economy for a provision. We pray, Lord, prosperity in their lives in every avenue. Lord, let no spirit of depression or anxiety or fear take over us or our church. God, we pray, Lord, for Lord hope in you, faith in you. We stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. We shake off all the things of this world that easily entangle and bog our mind down. We set our eyes on you, that you are most beautiful. You're most lovely. God, we desire you most of all. Father, I pray that you would just become so real to us, So amazing to us, God, that we are captivated by you, that we are shaken to the core by your awe, by your majesty, by your power. God, that you are our rock. You are our hiding place. You are our strong tower. You are our defense. So, God, we put all our trust in you. All of our strength is in you. All of our hope is in you. All of our joy is in you. All of our peace is in you and you alone, Lord Jesus. There is no one else but you. God, we desire you to know you more. God, if there's any area of our life, Lord, that is hardened by the things of this world that is destru- in despair or anxiety or fear, God, we just let those things go. Remind our spirits, our bodies to bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Father, we just ask you to be in this study tonight, be over our church Lord, that your spirit would move tonight on the things that we study. God, let it go into our hearts, not just to be hearers, but doers. God, to give us a revelation that Jesus is alive, that he's real, that he's on the throne, that he's with us, he's a present help in time of need. God, that you have this whole thing planned out, that nothing surprises you. God, that you are with us and so, Lord, let us sense you in these dark days. Let us see you in these dark days. Let us rejoice in you, hold to you, God. Lord, we just pray you'd manifest yourself, magnify your presence in Jesus' name. Somebody say. Amen. 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 Come on, somebody. All right. We are uh, talking about the Gospel of John, and we're going through an in-depth study um, uh, Kind of Bible school approach to the gospel of John. We have talked about John the Apostle. Uh, if you haven't listened to any of these, listen to some of them online. We've talked about John, who he is, the person that he found himself to be uh, the beloved of Jesus, someone that Jesus loved, that it so changed him from John's son of thunder to the disciple that Jesus loved because he was the only guy to be all the way with Jesus to the cross and it inspired him to write the Gospel of John, the 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Then we talked about the historical setting of John, the Roman day that he lived in, and how uh, the history of what got to this movement of Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots, and and all this pagan idolatry that had come into the world uh, in, in the Jewish day of Israel. And so now you have this movement called the Pharisees that had sprung up and, and trying to push back all of this idolatry that had mingled into the Jewish religion, and they were the heroes of the faith. They were those who had put up extra traditions and laws in place just so their kids and their nation would be able to come back to the Bible, come back to the, the Old Testament, the Word of God. And then uh, we talked about how John used unique words like light versus darkness. He talked about uh, abiding and knowing the truth. Uh, because he was using u- specific words to challenge his audience in his day at a day where believers had never seen the many believers in the last days of john 's life had not known the apostles. It was a new generation of Christians, so he wrote this gospel and it says at the very end, "So that you may believe, which is what our series is entitled so he 's writing this. To a new generation, much like the generation we live in today, a generation that maybe doesn't have grandmas at home that knows Jesus or that never grew up in church and knows the Bible. We've got a whole new world out there. Miss T and I were just talking about that. So many people you just come in contact with today just don't have a clue. They have no foundation uh, for who God is. So John writes this last gospel. There's Matthew, Mark, and Luke called the Synoptic Gospels. They are synonymous. synonymous. They are similar And so they have the same story told from three different perspectives, but John, he's out there in left field. So he's writing his own different version of the events from his own unique perspective and his own unique way. And he's telling us the case for Christ. There are seven significant signs. There are seven significant statements that Jesus makes about himself. And today we're going to talk about seven witnesses. So for John, he's putting... Uh, the world on trial while many people had put jesus on trial and he died and they accused him of all kinds of things and throughout Jesus' life their people are putting jesus on trial but the point of this gospel is that john puts the world on trial so today you're going to have let's go into the courtroom uh tonight and we're going to call seven witnesses to the stand to see about how many people have seen the movie case for christ all right Kind of like that, or God's not dead. This is kind of the same moment. So, if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're going to be right here all night. We're going to be reading mostly a lot of scripture, so you don't have a whole lot of notes tonight. I've only got one slide with all seven witnesses listed. But John chapter 5, and we're going to read just a little bit here. I want to introduce you to something called the Sabbath controversy, Sabbath, meaning the last day of the week, uh, where the Israelites are supposed to take a day of rest. And one, this is one of the first kickoff moments where people are going to begin to hate Jesus emphatically. They're going to, several moments in Jesus's life will lead people to want to kill him. And this is one of the main moments that's going to start this problem that's going to lead ultimately to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, all right? So let me paraphrase, and we'll get us to what Jesus says. So in John chapter five, we see, and again, like I said, John is not in order chronologically. He's in order as if he's writing a play to make a point, and this is how he is. So, John chapter five is the healing at Bethesda, or Bethsaida. All right. So there's in Jerusalem by a gate, which a lot of people sat at that were sick, and there was a pool there, and people were waiting for this angel. It was a legend. We don't know if it actually happened, but it was worth people waiting there. So maybe something happened at some point. Uh, But they would wait for this angel to stir the waters. And then the first sick person to get in would be made well. And there was a man there who had been in there for 38 years waiting for his miracle. So he says that we know that he'd never been able to get it because he's on a mat and he can't get up and walk. And so Jesus comes to him, and likely Jesus had passed him by many times, and there's a lot of great sermons on this passage, which we won't have time today to go into. But Jesus comes to him, he asks him kind of what I would say would be a stupid question. He says, do you want to get well? I don't know about you, bro, but what do you think I'm doing here? I'm standing right here, 38 years, like here's your sign, right? Uh, I want to get well, but everybody pushes past me. And so Jesus says the simple phrase, get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Now that may not be a big deal for a lot of us, but for a Jew, especially a religious Jew in that day, who had been so entrenched in their own doctrine and understanding of the law, and was so fearful of heresy. False messiahs, remember in the last days we have told, it's going to be false teachers, false prophets, lead many astray. They were told the same thing. They'll be false people. In fact, not long before Jesus, there was another guy named Judas who had uh, tried to lead many Galileans away. You'll learn about that in Acts. And it was a farce. So he gets up and he walks, all right? But look in verse 9 at the end of it. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Okay, just pause for a second. You just saw a miracle. You just saw a guy, 38 years, and you... Hey... Don't don't carry that. You're not supposed to. Do you understand what just happened here? No, they don't. They they're not even excited about it. And it's hard to even look from a uh, from our century into theirs and kind of understand that. That uh, they are so entrenched in preserving their faith. They're so entrenched in preserving the traditions that they have put around the law. And it's for rightly so. They have seen pagan ideology. They have seen men put. Uh, blood of Gentiles and pigs in the sanctuary. They have seen Rome try to install eagles that symbolize Rome on the very temple itself. They have seen their high priests bought off at the highest bidder. They have seen Galileans murdered and persecuted, put on poles by Rome. They have seen zealots die a bloody death against Roman soldiers in the streets because there is civil unrest. Violence and murder are the norm For the day. Pagan idolatry, nude baths, orgies, all types of sexual immorality, perversion, homosexuality, lesbianism, feminist rights movements. All this stuff is the norm of their day and they're saying, we have got to preserve that there is only one God and He's the God of Abraham and we need to save our children from the days that we live in so let's build this fence around the law. Let's say you, if if this is where the line is, we're going to make a box over here so far away that we're not even going to even get close to the line. Wouldn't you say that's kind of a good thing, right? You tell your daughter, hey, the belly shirt is a little too short, so now you have to wear it down to the knees. Okay, I mean, that's that's where they're doing. They're saying, you think you're going to go? Yeah, that's why I'm a dad of I'm two girls. Come on. You're not going to wear that. You're, you're going to be wearing a, ho- a hoodie and a cape and, you know, All this, and we're going to put rollerblades on you, just so nobody will be even attracted to you. This, this, leave them alone. I mean, that's how they're saying we're going to do this. So they say, no work on the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. God ordered it. And so they go and they say, who did this to you? And they say, man, it was a guy named Jesus. I don't really know about him, but then they go on. All right, so look, look looking here in verse. uh, 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing the things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, saying, This is where it starts My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Pause. What did that mean? What did God do on the Sabbath? He rested. But because of the sin of man, God stopped resting. What did he start doing? He started working. He started working for our redemption. And Jesus says two really just jabbing things to them. Not only did he work on the Sabbath, and we'll find out that he'll tell them that he's Lord of the Sabbath, but he says, my father's not even resting on the Sabbath. He's working for the salvation of this man and this entire nation. And my father, which he equates himself with God in that statement, a no Jew would have ever said, God is my father at that day in history. Now, we say it really lightly today, my father, because we have that prayer, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We take it very lightly, but a Jew would never have said that. That would be to them to equate yourself with God. So for them, he just said something almost damning. He said, I am a son of God, and God works on the Sabbath. You just struck down one of their ten commandments, and then the first commandment, which says, There are no other gods before me. There's, no, there's only one God. And you just said, my father, to equate yourself with God. And then you said, God works on the Sabbath. Boy, we're going to pick up a stone and take you out. That's what they're thinking. You are coming in here swaying the masses, you hypocrite. You're like one of those false preachers, false prophets, swaying people in these last days. We've got enough problems with Rome and all the stuff and immorality and sex that we're dealing with. We are trying to save our kids. Get you out of here. So they're putting Jesus on trial. But let's look what Jesus does to them. Alright, go keep going. Verse 19. He says, Truly or verily, or verily, or amen, amen. I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself unless it is someone something he sees the Father doing. What the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So the Father loves the Son and shows him all things, verse twenty, that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so you will marvel. He goes on, look at this. I mean, this is stuff is I mean, if you if you had someone come up here and you said these things, you would think the same thing. He says, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son, who's the son? Me. He says, me also gives life to whomever he wishes for not even the father judges anyone. What are you talking about? Have you read the Old Testament? God judges everybody. And he says, but the Father's not judging, but he gives that judgment to me, the son he is totally equating himself with God. And remember we know that he is the Logos from John 1. That's how John sees him. He says, "so that all one everyone will honor me the son even as they honor the father." Can you imagine someone coming up to the pulpit of Sanctuary Family Worship Center and saying, "I am God." I hope every single one of you would have kindly escorted that person out of the building. Right? And rightly so. So just let's not judge them so harshly. Let's think about what they were really going through. Someone who thinks, I mean, we're, Moses is up here but Moses is nowhere close to God. This guy's saying he is equal to God. He should be tried and convicted and crucified. That's that's legit. But unless he can prove that he is, right? So, let's go on. There are going to be five witnesses, really four, that Jesus is going to give in this passage. I'll give you the fifth one. And then number six and number seven are going to come at the end of John's book. So we're going to compile all seven together in one case for Christ today. Somebody ready? Somebody say amen. Okay, so... All their added traditions, they were trying to obey the law, and they miss the lawgiver. They say that you are a Sabbath breaker. You are a blasphemer because you are claiming unique and equal relationship with God. And then they put him on trial, but here's what Jesus does. He flips it around, and number one, he puts them on trial. He says this, that first part we just said. Uh, let's, go down to, let's go down to verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 31. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony of which he gives about me is true. Jesus, number one, testifies of himself. He's saying that everything that he does, he's only able to do because the Father allows him to do it. But then he said there, he said, it's kind of like you, of course, when you get on the stand in a court trial, you're going to defend yourself. What do we have in America? We say, I plead the fifth. I plead the fifth. I'm not going to condemn myself. We're going to always, people lie to make themselves look better. He could have been doing that. He says, okay, well, I'm going to give you my testimony. In verse John chapter 10, verse 30, he'd say, I and the Father are one. In John chapter 10, verse 24, it says, When the Jews were gathered around him and saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answers and says to them, I told you, and you do not believe. One of the number one criticisms of people like uh, uh, Muslims and other religions, and even agnostics and atheists, and especially when I went to secular Bible school when I was in... Uh, I I have a secular degree. My minor is in secular religious studies. And many of my professors would tell you Jesus never claimed he was God. I'm proving to you right now Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be God's son. He claimed to be the Messiah repeatedly, emphatically. They wouldn't want to kill him unless he did. That's the reason they crucified him is that he thought and said and made the statements, I am God. And we're going to talk about the I am statements later. He says, I am the sheep gate. I am the good the door. I am the way, the truth, the life. That word I am is the same word I am for when God said it to Moses. I am that I am. That is who he is. So he would say it about himself. I and the Father are one. At John 18, 20, He says, he says, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. And so Jesus becomes a witness to his own self, but he knows in Jewish society that testimony is not going to be true in court. No one's going to believe you just if you testify about yourself. We like to have things and witnesses. We like to have some proof, some evidence, and we're going to call other witnesses to the stand. So let's look at the second person called to the stand here. Verse 33, second person called to stand is John the Baptist. He says, you have sent to John and he has testified of the truth to the truth, but the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Remember at the very beginning of John's gospel he talks about there was one john the baptist but he says that that was not the guy there's a guy who came after him that was the true light that has enlightened every man john the baptist ministry was so widespread that even in the end of the book of acts or the middle of the book of acts paul comes up to a group of people and says have you ever heard of jesus baptism no but we've heard of john's baptism this would be decades later that thousands upon thousands of people had come to the ministry of john the baptist he would have been the billy graham of his day that's just comparable and John the Baptist never did a miracle we don't have any recorded evidence of John the Baptist ever doing a miracle but his message was repent 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 and he was a, uh, a high priest's son who had rejected his calling on his life to follow in his father's footsteps walked across the Judean desert outside the uh, off the Jordan River and was a hairy wild crazy guy okay but it attracted so many people and many people came. We don't know how many, but thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. And so Jesus says, you guys believe this guy. He was loved by some, hated by others. But he, a lot of people loved him. And he says, there was a man sent from God, and, and his name was John. He was not the light, but he testified of it. John one thirty four. John the Baptist said this about Jesus. He said, I myself have seen and have testified that this man, Jesus is the Son of God. So, he says, you've talked to John. You believe a lot of things John says. Thousands of people follow this guy that you all think has got a great reputation, and you've been hesitant to even persecute this guy because so many people follow him. And what does that guy say? He says, I am. I am. So there's that. So if, you, if Jews believe John the Baptist... Why didn't you accept Jesus? You can say that about your family, about people. We know that Jesus says who he is now in Scripture. Now there's people that we know. How come you don't believe? Your mama believes. Your daddy believes. Don't you think all these intelligent millions of Christians say that Jesus is who he is? You know, for some people, that's still not good enough. Jesus could be lying about himself, right? Could be. He actually could. We could all be doing this for no good reason here tonight. We could just be making it up. It could be all. Have you ever thought that? I'll be honest. I've thought that when I was growing up, even in my crisis of faith. I was like, maybe this has all been. A, I grew up in Pentecost, you know. Maybe this is all a bunch of emotionalism. Maybe, maybe it's been, uh, you know, mass hysteria. I was a psych major. Come on. I know about this stuff. It's mass hysteria. You can hype people up to all kinds of things. There's a reason that people went to Guyana and drank Kool-Aid. Come on. You can, you can do a lot of things with emotionalism. You can do a lot of brainwashing if you have the right person, the charismatic personality. Jesus could have been wrong. Well, but what all these people say, the reputable people. John the Baptist said it. Well, what if John the Baptist is wrong? Okay, I'll take that. Let's go on to another one. Number three. What about his works? What about his works? Look in the next part, verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony even of John you don't believe me, you don't believe John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. Amen. The very works that I do, the things that I do testify. What are some things he did? We talk about the miracles of Jesus. He says, God's work hasn't ceased at creation. He's saying that he's active in me. He's working through me, that I'm doing God's highest priority right now. For instance, I just healed a man on the Sabbath. Anybody of y'all out there healed a man out of 38 years who's been lame? Nope. Everybody goes cricket silent. He says, so whoever created the Sabbath has authority over the Sabbath, and now I determine its purpose. He says, but I'm, all of this, he says, even greater works. And, John 5, 20, that the Father has entrusted me, even, look in John five twenty one. Five twenty one, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. We'd see Jesus raise Jairus' daughter, and then we'd see Jesus raise Lazarus. Lazarus will be the tipping point. We'll talk about that at the very end of our class uh, in a few weeks but he will be the tipping point. So this guy raises the dead. This guy he even says to John when John's doubting, go tell him. He's the guy that's opening the ears and the eyes and the deaf and the mute. All of these people, all these things are happening. They were foretold that the Messiah would come in a day where he would be as if a doing the miracles of Elijah and Moses. He would be a guy who did greater works than even they did. He would be like them. So here's a guy Uh, who's walking on the seas, who's multiplying loaves and fishes, who's casting out demons everywhere he goes. Even John at the end of the gospel says, if if we were to write down everything Jesus actually did, the world could not contain the books of all the miracles. John only captures the highlights for us of what he wants us to know. But if we were to talk about it everywhere Jesus went, if Peter's shadow healed people as he walked by, how much more do you think Jesus' shadow healed people? Just where he walked. You know, I've been in uh, heard of services where the evangelist will pray for someone and they'll be healed. And the person who is behind them, touching them or catching them would be healed. Just think about the power that would flow through Jesus. Remember the woman with the issue of blood who just pressed through just to touch his clothes. I mean, he's like power just zoomed from me. You know, it's just exuded out of him. So the works, man, there's a reason thousands of people followed this guy into the middle of the desert with no food in the Judean wilderness. It wasn't because he was giving out McDonald's hamburgers. It was because he had power. He had power. He had the words of life. They were wondered at him. They were in awe of him. Maybe this is the one. Maybe he's. The Messiah. Maybe he's the one. So the true character of Christ is revealed because he has the messianic anointing. Nobody, no, not Elijah, not Moses, not Elisha, did more works than Jesus Christ. And then he'll sell us greater works while my church do. That's kind of awesome. We'll go into that later. So these miracles were signs that revealed his divine power. John three seventeen. They revealed his divine power. Well, but you know, I've seen people get those crutches up on those televangelist things and throw those crutches out. I've seen people fake those healings where my my leg is shorter because my hip is cocked this way and then magically delicious, my hip goes back the other way. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff out there, man. Even the devil, even Pharaoh's, even Pharaoh's musicians turn some sticks into some snakes now. Come on. Even in the last days, it says that they're going to be people who sway the elect because they're going to be able to do some things. And we're going to look at that and say, Ooh, if they can do miracles, must they not be of God? So, well, Jesus could be a liar. Uh, John the Baptist could be wrong. Those miracles could be snake oil. I don't know. We could be selling some stuff here. All right. You don't believe that? Let's go into the next one. The Father. Verse 37 about the father? Jesus says, verse 37, and the father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. He would say to them in another place, if you'd known the father, you'd know me. He says, you're not sons of Moses. And he goes on and talks about him in a way that most of us wouldn't say would be appropriate preaching today. He talks about them being broods of vipers and sons of snakes, right? He, he says woe to the Pharisees and hypocrites because you're not sons of Abraham. He said rocks will cry out before you will, right? Uh, I can make anybody be a son of Abraham. It's about faith and knowing God and relationship with him. He says, "So you haven't heard him, but the Father, think about this. Remember in in Matthew chapter 3 verse 17, Jesus gets baptized at that moment. What happens? Jesus goes down under the water, comes back up out of the water. There's Jesus, God's only begotten Son, the Logos, the Word of God in the flesh, who was one with God and has been with God since the beginning. A dove-like thing floats out of heaven, rests upon Him. That word upon Him is the same word we use in the book of Acts for that Messianic anointing coming down. That Messianic anointing would start His ministry. Before, He was that young... Lad, who had the seven spirits of the Holy Spirit upon him, growing in wisdom and stature with all men. But at that moment, at the baptism, the power from heaven to do the job of leading people to God and salvation, to die on the cross, that came upon him. And what is that God speaks from heaven? This is what? My son, in whom I'm well pleased. This is the one. This is my son. And they heard it. People heard it. They didn't just happen just once. You know that happened another time? They had it but another time. John chapter 12, verse 28. Look in John chapter 12, verse 28. Verse 28 through 30. This is leading up right to Palm Sunday, right before the main event of Jesus is going to die. The week he's going to go into the crucifixion. He gets to the place and goes into Jerusalem and he prays, Father. And we're about to do the. This is the climax of the movie here. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. Can you imagine? There's even another time. If God didn't have to just speak once or twice, he spoke another time in the middle of Jesus' ministry. You remember the moment? where Jesus takes a few of his disciples, including John, up to the Mount of Transfiguration. He goes there, and the disciples, just those few, see him with Moses and Elijah, and they're conversing about what he's going to do. And then all of a sudden, they're like, hey, let's build an altar. And they don't even know what they're talking about. And God says, this is my son. Listen to him. (laughs) Like, hush your mouth. Listen to this guy. He's my son. So we have God speaking audibly from heaven. When did God do that? When he spoke with Moses as if face to face. When he spoke with Enoch face to face. When he spoke with Noah When he spoke with Adam. This isn't something that happens a whole lot of times. And when it does, it's very, very important. And we have God speaking audibly that this guy is my son. He's my begotten. He is of me. Begotten means he is from me. He proceeded from the Father, as if one with the Father. My daughters have my DNA. They are of me. They are proceeding from me. But Jesus is a whole other level of oneness with God, right? Blows our mind. We don't understand it. But he is begotten. He is of. He proceeds from, meaning the Father is the originator of Jesus' power, of his source, of what he does. So we've got Jesus himself... I am. We've got John the Baptist. He is. His works proceeding from the Father, saying, he does. And the Father saying, that's my boy. Three times over. Well, I thought that was just thunder. Maybe I was just really hungry. I wanted some Chipotle. We don't have those here, around here, but I miss Chipotle burritos. I don't know if you've ever had one before. You should try it out. Um, Probably have to edit that out of the sermon so I don't pray royalty. But he says... There's Jesus, John the Baptist, his works, the Father, the next part. Look at the next one. If you didn't believe the thunder, look at verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal. Because at least, hey, let's just go back to the Bible. Hey, if you're curious about what some pastor believes in these last days, I'm t- telling you, I'm putting pastors on trial left and right as I see people posting their podcasts and stuff. I'm thinking... I want to know what people are really believing in. I want to know, before I follow a guy, I want to know what he believes and why and what he said. And so let's go back to the Bible. Okay. Well, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you've got eternal life. It's these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, and that you do not have the love of God in yourself. Whoo! All right. I thought I was here to defend God. No, you don't have the love of God in yourself. Well, who are you? I'm trying to tell you. All right. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. And if another comes in his own name, you'll receive them. You'll go down there and listen to so-and-so. You'll believe this Pharisee. You'll believe this doctrine. You'll believe all kinds of junk in the world. But when God himself shows up in your midst, you know him not. I worry about that today. For this generation, that God can show up and we know him not. We can be so wrapped up in our own churchianity, our own American consumerism, our own understanding and belief. And just like the Pharisees missed him the first time, I don't wonder that many people are gonna miss him the second time. Because they don't know, Jesus says, you do not know the hour of your visitation. He tells his disciples, you don't understand the hour. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You're thinking through the flesh. You're walking in the flesh. You're carnal-minded. You don't get what God is doing in the Spirit. You don't have eyes to see. Come this Sunday, I'm going to talk about eyes to see and ears to hear. You don't have eyes to see. You have no ears to understand. That's why I talk in parables, because you're getting judged. All right? So he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Do not think that I will accuse you before the father. The one who accuses you is your own Moses in whom you have set your hope. They put Moses up there with God and Moses would never have done that. But Moses and the law became their God. They their traditions that they built around Moses became their God. He became great. That's why they're concerned with pallets and not the, the prison chains breaking off of this man and having liberty in God. They're more concerned about how many songs are sung in the service. What is the temperature of the environment? What color is the sanctuary? What denomination are we? Do we speak in tongues or do we not speak in tongues? What kind of things can the pastor wear on stage that's culturally appropriate? Do we have a nice website? Because I really want to go to a church with a nice website. Did the kids' church have goldfish? Because my kids are allergic to goldfish. So they have to have wheat thins. Okay? Okay, I mean, we have all kinds of things that we choose and we care about in the American church. I'm preaching. All right. I mean, is that not true? We go through all this stuff and he says, you don't care. You're not searching for the glory of God. You're not concerned about that. I'm giving you the fifth witness here. Scripture. This whole Bible is all about Jesus from Genesis to revelation. That is the entire story. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's here. He's here. Guess what, church? He came. He came. He came. Guess what, church? He's coming again. He's coming again. He's coming again. There's this whole thing is about him. There is no story in here about you. I see so many. I'm going to go on a preaching tangent. There are so many pastors today preaching about you in this book. Your dreams, your ambitions, your goals, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your 401k, your car, your house, your this, your that. You're awesome. Everything is signed inside of you. If you just search inside yourself, you'd find out that you're a really special person. God always has love and plans for you and lollipops and rainbows and all that. This book is not about you. It is about him and him and him and him. That's all about him. All right. Okay. I'll get off of that. That's not in my notes. All right. So he says, I'm attacking, he attacks them for their unbelief. First, look in chapter 5, verse 41. Again, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourself. The love of God was not in their hearts. They were self-centered, unwilling to make total commitment to God and his will, even though these are the very people, we're not talking about atheists here. We're not talking about Democrats or liberals or homosexuals. We are talking about church people. We are talking about religious people. These are the Jews. These are the Pharisees. These are the ones defending the faith from liberalism, defending the faith from secularism, from paganism, from hedonism. That's who he's saying. You don't get it. You've missed it. You've missed the mark. And John will use the Old Testament throughout his book as a primary source book. If you look at the Gospel of John, he's going to quote the Old Testament 14 times explicitly. Four times he's going to use it as a citation, not just a quote, just he's going to kind of paraphrase it. And in several passages in Jesus' ministry, he's going to quote Psalms and Isaiah and the first five books uh, of the Bible very frequently, even in fact on the cross. We're going to see that every statement Jesus makes goes back to the Old Testament. Jesus even says, I did not came to break it. I came to fulfill it. Everything is going to be fulfilled in me. John is trying to tell these new generation of believers, Jesus has not come to undo the law or undo the word or make this thing void. He's come to fulfill it. You've just understood it wrong for so long, and you've made it say things it doesn't say. That's why you don't get it. That's why you don't get it. And I am going to add this. If you're studying the Bible and you don't see the gospel in what you're reading, You don't see Jesus in what you're reading. We start having uh, checklists for who's qualified and where you can stand and what you can do and can't do and what you have to wear before you can be a member of our church and all these things. You've done missed the point, my friend. You've missed the point. This book is about Him and Him and Him and His gospel, what He has come to do by grace through faith. If you're good enough to go to heaven, you can do anything. If Jesus sees you good enough to enter into the gates of singing His courts with praise. If you can be in the rapture at any moment because you're good enough and the Holy Spirit is on you, you are good enough. There's no more good you can be. There's no more levels of holiness beyond this that make you qualified. You're saved and you're saved and you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And if the same Spirit that had Him and raised Him from the dead is in you, you're holy. He loves you. You are approved. That's what He says in Galatians. He says, When did you receive the Holy Spirit? When you first believed Or after you did a bunch of things. They're like, well, when we first believe. Okay, go on. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace through faith. That's how you have the Holy Spirit, because God approves of you. Okay. So he declares that Moses, who you consider to be your defender, is actually in these last days going to be your accuser. The word you think is your defense, and what you're judging the world by is what's going to judge you. Judgment comes first to the house of God. So he says, okay, so you don't believe that. What about the scripture? Don't you see that there are hundreds and hundreds of scriptures that prophesy? Jesus will fulfill hundreds of things. Uh, there's a number, then some people change it. But uh, dozens and dozens of scriptures Jesus will fulfill to the T throughout his life. Everything he will do will fulfill what the Messiah was prophesied to do. Okay, so let's pause there. Those are the things that are happening pre-Christ. We've got a couple of minutes. I'm going to tell you the The seven. Because the number seven is very special. And John's going to give you seven witnesses. Jesus tells these Jews this. They don't believe it. So he continues to go in his ministry. And he's going to get to the last week of his life. And he's going to go up under the Mount of Olives. And in John chapter 14, I'm just going to paraphrase to get us through. He's going to tell them, he says, I'm going to go away. But peace I leave with you. Not peace like the world gives, but peace that I give. Peace of the heaven, peace of the Father. He says, a comforter, the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to be my witness. He's going to testify of me. He's going to remind you of the things that I have said. And so the Holy Spirit becomes the sixth testimony of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you've ever heard people say, Oh my gosh, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It goes back to this as a witness. Jesus will say that there are no more witnesses after the Spirit, and and that's in the spiritual sense, as in this. The Holy Spirit, which proceeded from Him, that came on the day of Pentecost, right, and is now going out. The Bible says in John that He is convicting or convincing the world of sin, and no man can come to the Father unless the Spirit draw him. He is the last remaining heavenly witness. God the Father came, Jesus has come, The Holy Spirit now in these last days is being poured on all flesh to testify through supernatural works and miracles, tongues, all these great things are now testifying through the church. There is a living God. Jesus Christ is on the throne. The Holy Spirit testifies. He glorifies Jesus. And so he's saying, when the helper comes, John 15, 26, I'll send to you from the Father. That is a spirit of truth. Somebody say truth. Remember what John's key words are? Truth, knowledge, right? Even says you're going to abide, okay? So this truth, this spirit who is the spirit of truth, he is a spirit of testimony to declare to the world that Jesus is God, all right? So this Holy Spirit is going to be the next witness. Uh, Remember in Romans 8, Paul says the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. You know that Jesus is alive because the Spirit is living in you. Hebrews 2.4, God is also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His will. One of the greatest evidences today that Jesus is alive is that there are churches who are filled with the Holy Spirit. How do, they believe how do unbelievers know? Paul says, he says, well, you're going to come up, they're going to come in your midst. And some of you are going to be giving words of prophecy or tongues of interpretation. And it says the unbelievers are going to be convicted by that. They're going to say, God is surely in this place because how would you know that about me? How would God, I mean, we heard God speak or by signs and wonders. Those things are going to be testifying. Jesus is life. You go to any missionary place in the world where gospel is first preached to indigenous people or to first populations, what happens? Signs and wonders confirm. What did he say in Mark? He says, these signs will follow those who believe, right? As you go out and proclaim the gospel, the spirit is going to back you up. You're going to go out as bold, spirit-filled witnesses. Don't be sure. You got to have this power before you go out and do this evangelistic missionary work. And as you go, the spirit's going to testify that what you say is true. He's going to testify. Jesus' words do give life. He's telling the truth. Amen. Are you with me? All right. So everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it'll be forgiven. But him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. What does that mean? It means that you have until the day you die to listen to the Holy Spirit. And if you deny, you can deny the Bible. You can believe that Jesus was a liar. You can believe the Bible's not true. You can believe John the Baptist and Billy Graham and every pastor since has been a liar. You can deny the miracles all you want, that there was never a miracle in the Bible. Listen to me, I've had... uh, uh, teachers who were, studied ancient hieroglyphics and knew the Bible better than I could ever hope to Bible read it in Greek and everything believe all the miracles were farce, none of them were true. it was just ancient way of writing and he says, "You can do all that you want. You can think that their God did not speak from heaven, but if you deny the Holy Spirit and his conviction on your heart." That's blasphemy against that last witness. There's no more hope for you. There's no more witnesses coming after this before that rapture comes. There's no more witnesses. It's going to be that the Holy Spirit is here on this earth for the time of the church. And when the church is raptured up, there's evidence in Thessalonians that says that he's going with us, that there's going to be just mass chaos, and you don't want to be here for that day, okay? So he says, the last witness. But there's another catch to that. There's also a seventh witness. And that's you and me. We're right there with the Holy Spirit. We can't do anything apart from him. But what does he say? He says, you will be my witnesses. You see that your life today, the world is putting Jesus on trial. And how we live, especially right now, how we post on Facebook, how we act at work, how we lead our kids, how we stay married healthily how we do our finances, how we talk to other people, how we walk around with our heads lifted up. We are witnessing. We're on the witness booth. The world is trying to put Jesus on trial. Jesus is in the defense box. And the world has called some witnesses. But what's going to happen at the end of all of this, as God is up there on the judge, He's got the gavel, and the world is accusing... Well, we want to live this way. This is how we think. This is how we... This guy's against how we are. He's a liar. He's not... There's no proof that he died on the cross. There's no proof that there was miracles. The church is a bunch of hypocrites. They don't let us live like we want to live. This is how we're like this and you're like that. You just do what you do. Leave us. They begin to crucify over and over again. And all these witnesses, there are two witnesses left. There is the Holy Spirit and there are you and me. And he says, you will be my witnesses, but I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. But then there's a day coming where judgment will be pronounced. There's going to be a trumpet sound, the dead in Christ will be raised, and we who are with remaining will be gathered together with him in the air. Then God sets that whole day of judgment in motion. We are at the end of the last days. There's going to be a last day. It's called the day of reckoning. Well, God will bring judgment on the world. His whole plan of this Bible will fall into motion. We'll see the book of Revelation unfold like we've never seen it done before. And judgment will be pronounced. Amen. Okay. So how important is that for you and for me? Not to take that word lightly. It says, you will be, Acts 1, 8, you will be my witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It's not just a Pentecostal thing. That's like a Jesus thing, right? Okay? That's not a charismatic. That's a Jesus thing. That's not a, that's not a Baptist versus. That's a Jesus thing. I want you to be my witnesses. I testified. My father testified. My works testified. The, spirit, the scripture testified. John testified. But now you're going to testify. Isn't that important? That's pretty important. You're right up there with the Bible and John the Baptist. Okay? God's speaking from heaven. Now you're going to be my witnesses last. Oh, buddy. Whew, Don't you need the Holy Spirit to do that? I want to be because I know if I got on the witness stand for Jesus Christ and they had a heavenly courtroom and they called Heath Harris up there and said, hey, Heath Harris, we're going to put you on trial. Do you testify and tell the whole truth? Nothing but the truth will help you something. (laughs) Yes, I do. You know, do you testify with your life that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God? that He is the great I Am, the Logos, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that everything He says is true, what's your life going to say? What's you going to say? Because that's where we are. Your life is on trial with His. The world is really on trial. So let's wrap up with this. Look with me in 1 John 5, 5. So this is John's end of his life, last epistles here, and he'll close it up for us. There are perfect witnesses to Jesus. Seven is a perfect number. You know, God is so gracious. He will not let it go idly by that men could deny him. He wants to be sure that no man could ever be justified in saying, well, I didn't know. I didn't have it all together. You didn't ever tell me. That will never come up in heaven's courtroom. Do you understand that? No one will ever get up to heaven and be able to say with any validity, I didn't have an adequate witness. So I've given you seven, and since then I've given you more and more and more. 1 John 5, 5. The one, who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came, look how he came, John goes on and keeps adding witnesses. He came by the water and the blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and all three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him, God, a liar. Because he is not, don't call God a liar, by the way. That's not going to work out so well for you. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this. That God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. John brings the testimony to a close in his last, one of his, this first of his last epistles. The testimony is this if you reject Jesus Christ, you are committing a far great sin, you are calling God a liar. If you reject Jesus Christ, you call God a liar. See, a lot of people want to ride this fence. Let me be indifferent. Let me just find a place. I don't really, I'm not rejecting him. I'm just kind of living the life I want. If you do not submit and believe in who God has testified Jesus Christ to be, with your very life, you tell God he's a liar. And so I thought, had this on the, as I was driving here, just praying, thinking about A lot of times we talk about salvation, but we don't talk about what you're saved from. You see, this whole courtroom is about salvation and it's about judgment. In a witness stand, there's going to be a pronouncement of guilty or innocent. And so some people just they don't want to be not innocent. They just don't want to be guilty. Does that make sense? They don't want to be saved. They just don't want to be judged. And we want salvation, but we forget what are you saved from? We are saved from judgment, for judgment is upon the world. And we don't preach judgment very much anymore because it's a bad word. But that is the status of the world today. The world is on trial for calling God a liar. And these are seven testimonies, seven witnesses. And you and I are one of them to say, God is alive. He is that he is. It's Jesus. So how does your life testify to the evidence of Jesus Christ for many people around you at your work who do not believe or at least are indifferent and in their own indifference deny the fact that they're being judged. How do you use these witnesses to testify to non believers? And are there any modern witnesses you can think about in your life you can use to testify? Let me give you a couple examples just as I'm closing. <clears throat> I think about the witnesses we have today of science where all of creation. Romans says, testify that there is a God and only a fool. Psalms we even say, and add to that, in their heart will say there is no God. Go out in the stars. Look at the clouds. Look at the birds. Look at the... I mean, if, if, if all of this was farce, if it all was fake, who made the order who made the physics? Who made the laws of math? who made the laws of gravity? who, who designed? There is a design. You have to have a designer if there's a, something as, as complicated as this, and we 've only found this amount of life. and if you watch astronauts, I love science and uh, you know, space and all this and almost all these astronauts will look back at the world and say, "This is a special place. There is nowhere in the universe that we can far, as far as we can see, like this place. We better take care of it. Doesn't that tell you something? That we're the only place with... I mean, there is more life in the fabric of this carpet right here in a one-inch square than the entire known universe. Think about that. And you say, there is no God. It's all chance. It's all random. It's all happenstance. We have our own conscience that declares, go to every civilization in the history of the world, every single civilization up until this modern atheistic age has always believed in something divine. It's inside of man. Go to a tribal village in the middle of South America who's never met a single person. They believe in something greater than themselves. Why? Because the own conscience of man says there is a God. There is 2,000 years of biblical history that stands proof that this Bible cannot be burned out of society. It cannot be thrown out of society. You can go to every Marxist, every socialistic country, and you will find a remnant of Holy Ghost believers holding fast. This book has been burned and destroyed by dictator, by dictator, by dictator, by empire, by empire. It has been persecuted. People have been tortured, died, and martyred to get you this book in your hand. And it has lasted because God ordains it so. How else could this Christianity be the largest religion in the world if one man was a liar? Why would dozens of his earliest fathers or earliest followers die for him if he wasn't true? You would never die for something you knew was fake. It stands proof. And John's gospel becomes the fourth gospel of three. I'll end with this. In biblical texts... All right. This is your Bible history for you. Ancient history for you. If you ask an Egyptian scholar or a scholar of ancient Chinese artifacts or literature or whatever, if you ask any ancient scholar, there is a, a, um, a rule in ancient history. It's called multiple attestation. Attestation. It means there are multiple things that attest to this event being true. We do not know that King Tut was a real guy. He could be made up. But because there are multiple historical artifacts, hieroglyphics, sarcophagi, whatever, we believe that this guy was real. They could have, Somebody could have wrote, went to build a temple and made up a guy and wrote it on the wall and said, It's true, right? It's like somebody getting your email and you can make up a story. I mean, we wouldn't know. But because multiple sources attest to it, we believe that it's true. Ancient history has a rule of three. If there are three sources that proclaim it to be the most similar story, it's true. What do you have in the first four books of the, Old, of the New Testament? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three are 99 plus percent the same. They vary in very few ways. Again, if I had a car accident and I said, Greg and and Bert and Micah, tell me what happened. They're all going to tell me basically the same thing. But one of them wasn't paying attention or one of them saw a different angle or whatever. One of them's focused on the bicycle that ran out. One of them's focused on the tailgate. One of them's focused on the driver. They're all going to get the accident. but It's just going to come out a little different. You understand me? That's why we take multiple descriptions of events if you're a police officer. Got to get the whole story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the whole story. It is perfected in that sense. That is a true historical, non-argumentative, historical fact. These events happened. So John writes a fourth. And it goes above and beyond. You see, God always gives you more than enough so that you can't deny he's gracious. He, that He has not given you everything you need to believe in Him and to know that He is who He says He is. So now that we just have three Gospels that tell the truth, we have four. Isn't that like God? He likes to go over the top. Witnesses that testify. Amen. Amen. Any questions?